Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Hey guys, welcome back. It's good to be here on this journey with you. And uh, you know what? Can I just be honest? When I pray at the beginning of these sessions, it's it's not some you know perfunctory ritual that you're just supposed to pray. I really genuinely um, am aware of my own inadequacy. And so uh, when I pray, um, I'm, I'm honestly praying with all my heart. And so let's do that right now. Lord Jesus, uh, you know that I love this Bible. I love the stories in this Bible, the truths, the glimpses that we get of you and of um, the, the heroes of the faith who've served you faithfully before us. And we want to learn from them. We want to learn from you. But Lord God, you know that only you can give us the wisdom to see these words, to lift them off the page and put them into our hearts and into our lives. That's your job. All we can do is point our eyeballs at the page and um, try to soak it in. But you can, you're the one who can implant these truths into our hearts. So Lord Jesus, we help us as we explore this trail today. Thank you, Jesus. We're grateful for the privilege. Amen. All right, so we've been in Philippians, haven't we? And we got uh, up to verse 12, and uh, there Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has turned out to further the gospel. And uh, we paused in our last session, and we said, okay, well, the question is, what has happened to Paul? Clearly something very significant has happened to Paul, something so uh, urgent and critical in his life that the Philippians, hundreds of miles away, have heard about it, and they're concerned, they're anxious. And so one of the reasons Paul writes this letter is to try to relieve their anxiety and, and um, you know, let them know that what's going on is, is, is all right, you know, that God's, God's got this. Um, but the question remains, you know, what was it? What in the world had happened to Paul? And so to try to answer that question, uh, we decided that we're going to go back into the book of Acts, where we started Project Philippians all those episodes ago. And uh, we're going to go back to where that we pick up the story again. Uh, back in Acts 17 is when he left Philippi and completed what was called the second missionary journey, where he uh, went on uh, to uh, Athens and to Corinth and then um, circled back uh, through Ephesus real briefly and then back to his home church in Antioch. And then in chapter 18, uh, he's back in Antioch. And uh, we're not told how long he stays in Antioch. In fact, very very little detail is given about his decision to go out again. But eventually he decides to go back out onto the road because he wants to go back to these people. Now, we talked about two main reasons that were, or visions that were driving uh, Paul's heart. Not literal visions, but just, you know, the ambitions in, in his heart that were compelling him forward. Two main driving motivations. One was he wanted to get to Rome. Now, Rome, of course, was was the center of the, the the capital of the empire, right? And so he knew that if he could bring the gospel and plant it in the nucleus of the empire, that it would spread like a virus throughout the entire known world. And so he really wanted to get to Rome. That was one of his driving passions. The other thing that got him back off the couch and back on the roads was that uh, he had a deep, deep concern for the very poor Christians in Jerusalem. They were suffering. They were destitute, uh, probably because of the, the 
recent famine that was going on. He really wanted to help them out. And God had given them this great vision of using this opportunity to unite the church, to bring the the left and right sides of the church together, so to speak. So on the right, we have the Christians in Jerusalem who are predominantly Jewish. And then on the left, all the way to the east, uh, the churches over there were all predominantly Gentile. So minor Asia, which was Turkey today and into Europe, all the churches that Paul had planted were predominantly Gentile. And there was a severe division between these two parts of the church. And uh, it was one of Paul's great ambitions and dreams to unite the church across these racial boundaries. And so he thought, what better to do than to go to all of these Gentile churches to tell them about the poor Christians and their plight and to, and to ask them to donate money to the, the Christians in Jerusalem. And so his third missionary journey is essentially just a massive fundraising campaign where he travels about 2,500 miles on foot and boat, and uh, and he goes to all these churches, and he collects this money, and um, he spends—it's it, it's actually an extended time. He spent like two, two and a half years in Ephesus. Um, from there, he writes the letter to Corinth, and he realizes there's some serious stuff going on in Corinth, so he goes over there, um, writes a second letter um, along the way. When he gets to Corinth, he stays there for quite a while, writes the book of Romans. So he's he's busy, um, but he's always got this plan in mind. And then he finally circles back to Ephesus, or at least nearby to Miletus, and he invites the Ephesian elders to come down and listen to his goodbye speech. We talked about this in the last episode. And there he says, I still have this great vision that I need to get to Rome, but first I need to get back to Jerusalem. And as we recall, he wanted to get back to Jerusalem by the next festival which was the Pentecost. So the Passover had just, he just uh, celebrated the Passover in Philippi. He wanted to celebrate the Pentecost 50 days later in Jerusalem because he knew that there was going to be a huge crowd of, of Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem at the time. And he thought, what better time for this gift from the Gentile church to the Jewish church to be uh, have the greatest impact by bringing them uh, when they're all there. And so he returns to Jerusalem. And that's where we ended up at the end of our last episode. He finally gets back to Jerusalem. Part one of his goal is about to be fulfilled. Now, when he gets there, though, there's a problem. The elders meet him. He tells them all about the incredible things that God's doing in the Gentile church. Um, and they're all excited about him. Well, the elders are, that is. But they say, we got a problem. You see, there's a, there's like thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians out there in the city right now who have heard some rumors about you, Paul. And they have heard that you, that you're a heretic. So let's pick this up now in Acts chapter 21, verse 21, when, when the elders say they have been, these Jews have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live in among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What are we going to do? They're certainly going to hear that you have come. So what they're saying is these Jewish Christians are, they're, they're really going through a time of, of uh, severe nationalism. In other words, they believe that the Jews, uh, the Jewish way of life is still the only way of life. Though they've come to believe in the Messiah, they still firmly hold to the Jewish teachings of the Old Testament. And uh, they think that Paul has just abandoned that. And so they are uh, really upset about that. And the elders are worried, uh, and rightly so, um, that the, the Jewish Christians are not going to accept him. 
and uh, the Jews uh, that have not received the Messiah yet and not turned to Jesus, they're, they're going to be even more strongly opposed to what Paul's doing. They really believe that he is a heretic and heretics should be stoned to death. Uh, this has happened already. There's been deaths. One of the things you got to understand about Jerusalem is that they're, not, they're so close. To, I was just thinking about this yesterday. They're so close to death there. I mean, there's so many. It's like we, we feel so safe in our uh, Western countries. Um, you know, we're not ever uh, uh, at risk of losing our life uh, for the sake of the gospel here. Um, but th- that's not the case in Paul's day. They, I mean, they'd already seen uh, Stephen stoned to death. Uh, uh, um, James, uh, the brother John, was killed for his faith. Of course, Jesus was crucified, you know, uh, just decades earlier. So this, this is a reality that they're clearly facing. And we already saw that Paul knew that he was going to be facing trouble, but yeah, he wanted to, to, to push forward because he believed that God had a plan for these people and he loved them. And so um, the elders come up with this idea. How are we going to uh, placate, you know, pacify the, the, the these um, Jewish nationalists? And he said, well, verse 23, they say, so so do what we tell you. There, there's these four guys, they've made a Jewish vow, take these men, pay their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Uh, this is just a Jewish ritual that was common in those days. And then when you, they see you doing this, everyone will know that there's no truth in the reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. And as for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision already. And that's a reference back to chapter 15, where they um, came a decision of what uh, how the Gentiles should try to blend in with the Jews. So Paul goes along with this idea. Now, keep in mind that Paul has already said, to the Jew, I am a Jew. Uh, and he, he has not rejected the ways of it. He's, he's still following uh, predominantly the, the Jewish traditions and, and culture of his day, up until the point where it conflicts with the gospel. And he doesn't want it to anything to uh, conflict with the idea that the salvation is free. It's not by obedience to the law. Um, so, but it doesn't mean we don't, we stop obeying the law. Uh, in Paul's mind, he's still living according to the law by and large in his life at this point. And so he has no objection to this plan. And so they go through the plan and he goes, he, he uh, purifies himself and um, uh, pays the, pays expenses, all this stuff to try to prove that he is um, still obeying uh, God's laws. Um, and it seems like it's working for seven days. Everything goes good. But then some a problem comes up and the Jews from the province of Asia, this is verse 27, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. So who are these guys? Well, these are these pilgrims we were talking about. Remember, the day of Pentecost was here, and so Jews from all over the known world had come, and many of these Jews were from Asia. That's the place where Paul had been ministering in all these other Gentile cities. But remember, in just about every one of them, he was either flogged or beaten or put in jail or stoned. You know, all these different things to happen to him in these um, Jewish, by, from whom? From the Jews in these cities. And so these Jews had moved down in Jerusalem. They're saying they're the ones who are stirring up the most trouble here. And they, so they say in verse 28, they start shouting out, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our laws in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and divided the holy place. 
Uh, the reason they said that, verse 29, is because they previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Now, you've got to understand a little bit of the context here that um, they saw Trophimus. They knew he was a Gentile. He obviously dressed and, and you know, cut his hair like Gentile. It was pretty obvious. Everybody knew. Um, and so they thought he brought him into the temple. What's wrong with that? Well, okay, let's, let's take a uh, – I wish I had a visual here to show you a picture of the temple. In Paul's day, it was huge, massive. I think it was, I don't know, three or four football fields in size, if I remember correctly. And it's just this huge um, area. And it was divided into five what they called courts. The inner court was the Holy of Holies. And then the next court out was the holy place, the temple where only the priests could go. And then the um, court outside of that was called the uh, Court of the Jews, where only the Jewish men could go. Outside of that was the court of the women, where only Jewish women could go. And outside of that was what was called the court of the Gentiles. So the outermost ring or rim around the temple was the closest that any Gentiles could ever get to the temple. And in fact, there was a wall that separated the Gentile region from all the other areas. And on this wall, there were placards, there were signs posted all around this this wall um, and and archaeologists have found these signs, so you can you can look it up. Uh, and uh, it's called the Thanatos inscription. Thanatos means death, and the inscription says, "No foreigner may enter within the barricade that surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death." <laughs> so it's very clear that the Jews absolutely despised the Gentiles and they were willing to kill them if they brought them into the temple or if they came in the temple. And so this idea that Paul had brought a Gentile in the temple, which he hadn't, by the way, but they they assumed that he had, um, that was enough to make Paul just an instigator of, of complete national treason. And so they were ready to kill him. And verse 30 says, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple area and immediately the gates were shut. That's an interesting line. You know, um, I imagine they were, of course, there's this huge riot. They dragging Paul out outside of those um, inner gates, outside of the Jewish area, into the Gentile area. And the gates were shut. The priests were like, they, they wanted to keep the, the sanctity of the inner temple pure. And so they closed the gates because of this riot was happening and keep the violence out. But um, I think that Luke has something else in mind when he said this, when the gates were shut, he's painting a picture here of the the dramatic turn that has happened in the Jewish world right now. Those gates were shut. It was a figurative way of pointing the picture that that Christianity had now been locked outside of, of Judaism. And um, you know, I did some research, and if, as far as I can tell, we have, there's no historical record of any Christian messenger of the gospel entering into uh, the temple uh, from that moment on. We don't know. I mean, it may have happened, clearly, but there's no historical record of any Christian going back into that temple. And of course, that temple was destroyed only a, 10 years or more later um, by the Romans. So uh, this was basically the the death knell of, of um, the Jewish temple. Uh, they closed the doors on Christianity. They could have opened it up and, and who knows what God would have done to just uh, to the, inside the temple, but the, the gates were shut. Now, there's a plot twist here because the Romans are watching this. Now, I kind of painted a picture of the uh, the 
temple, um, right next to the temple, was a huge fortress, a Roman fortress called the Fortress of Antonio. And uh, it was lifted high up so that the uh, up on the balcony they could overlook the entire temple region. And they did this because they knew how the Jews were prone to rioting. And so they would have soldiers lined up there with stairway directly down into the temple area. And so the Romans were watching from their little balcony. And verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, the news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. And he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down the steps to the crowd. And while the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came up and arrested Paul, because obviously he's being beaten, so obviously he must be a criminal, um, with two chains. You know, they chained him to a couple couple soldiers. And when he asked who he was and what he had done, some of the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get a truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. So you you just got to picture this scene. Paul is getting beaten. He's getting torn to pieces. You can imagine the, the violence of this mob at this point. And it just strikes me how Paul had a choice to go to Jerusalem. And this was no surprise that this was going to be the response. You remember back in Acts 20 uh, at Ephesus, he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. All I know is that the Holy Spirit has been prophesying to me at every city that beatings and imprisonment is in my future. So he he knew as he's walking into it that he was going to face this type of um, punishment and here it's come on him. So it's no surprise to him. And yet God is still sovereign. He uses the Romans in this case to save his life. And so verse 35, they'd taken Paul up to the top of the steps. The violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed him kept shouting away with him. So just... Imagine this violent crowd ripping at the soldiers, trying to get Paul. They're carrying him over his head. You can just imagine how you know, humiliating this has to be for Paul. He's just up there beaten and in rags, but he's not finished because in verse 37, he says, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And the, uh, the, the Roman was surprised that he could speak Greek, but he says, I'm, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, so please let me speak to these people. And verse 40, having received the commander's permission... Paul stood on the steps, it's the steps at the top of the um, Fortress Antonio, and he motions to the crowd. So picture this. He's beaten. His clothes are ripped. He's bruised. He's, he's bloody. He's been carried up the steps by the Romans, but he waves his hand and he silences the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. The Aramaic was their home language, right? It was the language of the Hebrews. And so a, a hush just comes over the crowd. There's silence. And this is the moment of truth. Paul is going to make his defense. That word when he says, listen now to my defense, it's the word apologia. You remember that a few episodes ago, we talked about that word and how in Philippians he said, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. Defense. Defending was the word apologia. And this is one of the cases. Remember what we talked about? It's a a legal term used uh, for a defense in court. And so he's, he's acting like this is a court scene and he's on trial and he's making his apologia, his defense. And so what does he say? Well, 
he just tells his story. And so the next uh, several verses is just Paul's testimony. He doesn't get up there and, and preach some compelling sermon of logic and philosophy and, and all this. He just stands there and he tells his story. And he tells it in a way that's very, um, uh, tries to grab hold of their hearts and let them know that he is a Jew just like they are. He is a passionate, zealous Jew just like they are. He talks about how he persecuted people just like they're persecuting. He tries to paint a picture of his ability to relate to where they are. But then he says something changed in his life, and he tells the story about the day that he encountered a man named Jesus of Nazareth and how that changed everything in his life. And he just tells his story, hoping that they will understand that Jesus is their Messiah too. But as he's telling the story, there's one other piece of the story that he wants to let them know about. And so that's uh, down in verse 18. When he, uh, the, he's uh, in Jerusalem and he's in the temple praying and the Lord Jesus appears to him in trance and it says, Jesus says, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. And, and Paul says, Lord, I, these men know that I was a persecutor just like they are. And But verse 21, then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, you got to understand, Paul knew what he's saying here. But the I'm imagining that the Christians around him, like Luke and some of the others, are thinking, Oh, Paul, don't go there. Don't, don't say that. That's the last thing you want to say at this moment. These these Jews out here hate the Gentiles. And you're, you, you know... Can you leave that part of the story out right now? <laughs> you have to bring this up. But Paul, in his mind, knew that this was such a critical part of the gospel story. It wasn't just a gospel for Gentiles and just a gospel for Jews. He was for the whole world, and this was central to Paul's message. And so he, it, at risk of his own life, uh, goes ahead and just blatantly says, I am was sent to the Gentiles. And of course, the crowd predictably doesn't respond well. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul up until the point he said this, and then they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not to fit to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. Uh, I think they were looking for rocks to think, fling, and they didn't have any, so they just started throwing dust. And the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. So, again, the Romans come to the rescue, but the point is that Paul is here, standing on these steps, giving testimony to the, to the change in his life that God has radically transformed him and helped him to not only see the beauty of the gospel of the Messiah's sacrifice for us, but also how the Messiah loves the entire world and cross-racial boundaries. That's what God's doing. He was bringing the entire world into his kingdom and into his family. And that was the message that Paul wanted to bring um, to Jerusalem. And uh, obviously it wasn't received very well. Okay, so we're running short on time. But before we finish, I just need to ask the question, what's the point of all this? I mean, this is an interesting story, perhaps, you know, dramatic and all that. But why is this story in the Bible? What's the, what's in here for me today or for you? Well, the reason I really love this story so much is because it gives us such a glimpse into the life and character of Paul. I mean, it shows us who he is down in his core. And I noticed three things. I see his his courage, 
his compassion and his conviction. So his courage in that he would walk straight into the city in the midst of such opposition, knowing the prophecy, the prophets had been telling him, the Holy Spirit had been telling him that there is going to be trouble in the city. And yet he walks boldly straight in there and faithfully preaches the message. And then his compassion. I mean, think of him up there on top of those stairs. These people have been trying to kill him and had beaten him to, to a pulp. And yet, what does he do? He stands up there. He doesn't blast them like a prophet saying, you sinners, you got to receive Christ or you're going to hell. He just stands up there, waves in his hand, and he says, brothers, fathers, listen to me. Let, me. let me speak to you. He just has this incredible love for these people. It's not diminished by their hatred for him. And then finally, his conviction. His conviction is the simple story that Jesus changes lives. And so he just tells them the story of how Jesus changed his life. He just gets up there and says, brothers, fathers, listen to me. Let me make my defense, my apologetic, my apologia. My friends, apologetics is not necessarily getting up there and proving, you know, in a court case that God is real and that Jesus rose from the dead, although that's important. But Ultimately, for Paul, apologetics is just telling the story of how Jesus changes your life, how Jesus impacted him, and he's convinced that if they'll give Jesus a chance, that he will change their lives too. And so he just tells the story that Jesus loves him, and Jesus loves the whole world, and that's all we need is Jesus. So my friends, I don't know what barriers or obstacles you're facing today, what hatred may be uh, coming against you, but I just want to implore upon you to take a look at the life of Paul, his courage in the face of obstacles, his compassion in the face of hatred, and his conviction of the story that Jesus is all you need. And I want to just pray that over you right now. Lord God, we need this in our lives. We need more courage, more compassion, more conviction. And we ask that you would do that, transform us, help us to be more like Paul so that we can ultimately be more like Jesus, who was the hero of our faith, the one whose courage and compassion and conviction took him all the way to the cross, but also took him to the right hand of God where he's seated now ruling over us. And we bow our knee to him and we say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we're thankful. But Lord Jesus, transform our hearts so that we can be like you and be like Paul and have this type of passion in our lives for your message, for your kingdom, and for your everlasting glory. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart, to transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.